You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm now joined in studio by somebody who has been on the show before, so it's a great welcome back um, to to our friend Gerard Labuskakni. It's sometimes very difficult in a formal um, environment to know what to call Gerard Labuskakni. He's a <laughs> professor at Vince University. He's an advocate of the High Court, and he's a brigadier retired, and you carry that rank with you um, wherever you go from the, the psychological unit of SEPs. We, we're chatting to you today about the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Gerard, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me again, Chad. Gerard, it, it, it truly is confusing when you're dealing with somebody who is as accomplished as yourself. And I know you're going to say, just call me Gerard. But in the professional <laughs> context, what are you called? Brigadier? Are you called advocate or are you called prof? Uh, like I say, I always prefer Gerard. Um, it's, it depends. I suppose it depends on the environment. You know, at the university, I suppose profs are most appropriate. In court, prof is a pretty handy title to have if you're testifying as an expert. Um, I always try and avoid advocate because I'm not a practicing advocate and I would, you know, be quite fearful of anybody looking at my advice as legal advice. So, um, so yeah, you know, usually Gerard is actually the most comfortable one, to be honest with you. So, Gerard, tell us more about the, the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. What was the thinking behind it and what are the objectives going forward? Yeah, well, over the years, when I was still at STAPS, we were starting to get more and more involved in, in threat assessment. You know, that was anything from stalking to domestic violence threat assessments to even corporates coming to us saying, look, our CEO got a death threat. Um, can you advise us on, on can you profile the suspect, et cetera? And we kind of realized, wow, that, you know, if, if companies who tend to have pretty good sort of security setups don't have people who are able of assessing what kind of a risk they're facing when you have a threat made to a person, um, then there's clearly something missing out there, that a gap. And when I left the police in 2016, I kind of thought, well, that's something that I would like to get into because I found it fascinating, firstly, and it's about preventing violence as opposed to reacting after something has happened. And, um, and I had already been going to quite a few conferences overseas to the, to the European Threat Association, the American one, et cetera. There's about four uh, throughout the world, and they've always been saying to us, you know, why don't you guys get something going in, in South Africa or in, in Africa? Because there's nothing in Africa, there's nothing in Middle East, there's not, there was nothing in, in South America, for example. And, and the most recent association had been the Asia Pacific one that started up a couple of years ago. And I always kind of looked at it as a case of, well, geez, you know, at the moment it's only me and a couple of other people are even talking about threat assessment in South Africa. How do we get this going? And as time went by, and more and more South Africans went to these types of conferences, and we started with my company here doing more work in the, in the corporate environment. And there was a lot of buy-up by some companies saying, wow, this is actually a huge gap, and we need to really have this to make sure our people are safe as an addition to our physical security sort of support. Um, it became sort of a case of where some of the corporates we were working with would say, why don't we get an association going? You know, and we're, you know, we're happy to debate, devote our time and in some cases resources. And, and as soon as that happened, it became possible for us to say, you know, instead of me and one or two other people in someone's garage with, you know, trying to get something going, we can actually do this on a more professional level. And then we held our first sort of inaugural opening concept meeting in about, I think it was July last year, where we had about, I think, 90 people come from sort of the corporate environment. And we said, this is what we want to do. This is why we think such an association is helpful. Do we kind of get the mandate of the crowd in this room to go ahead with it? And then sort of the, the overwhelming sort of yes was coming from everybody. And that's, and that's what we did. And we got the association going. We planned to have our first conference in November this year. But as you can imagine with COVID, that's kind of sidelined that. So we postponed our first conference till next year. 
We've already got ABSA as our sponsor for this conference, so we definitely have the funding to do a really, really great conference with international speakers. And it was really about getting making an awareness amongst corporates, not just corporates, amongst the police, amongst psychologists, amongst HR people, amongst security people, amongst labor lawyers, that, you know, looking after your employees when there are certain concerning behaviors is the responsibility of the company. And it goes beyond just having access control downstairs. It's about actively making that threat go away if there are certain – and certain occupations are just more inclined to it than others. The healthcare environment has a high rate of getting their their employees assaulted. Um, But, you know, if you have call centers, I mean, they get regularly abused by people. You have unhappy customers. You have now in the COVID times people facing huge economic pressures, you know, not being able to pay their bonds, lose potentially losing their houses even, et cetera, and and just losing their jobs, which are risk factors that add to people doing insane things that they wouldn't have normally have done. And sort of how do we manage it? So this is about getting the profession up and running of how can we actually look at assessing and managing and preventing violence from taking place. So, Gerard, let's look at something that's impacted on all South Africans. Let's look at the threat from both a micro as well as a macro perspective in regards to government's initial decision, which has now been reversed, to ban alcohol. How would that have affected people (laughs) suddenly coming down off alcohol in their home environment, in their work environment, and then suddenly being allowed once again to drink? (laughs) Let's look at it from a, 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 a perspective of a home. Let you get from the perspective of a business. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, definitely alcohol is, or the abuse of alcohol is a risk factor in any potentially violent situation. So if you have someone who is violent by nature and you throw an alcohol into the mix, it's going to, for that period of them drinking, is going to make them an increased risk for violence. So I think there is some logic in saying if we take violence out the equation, for the most people, that will help reduce violent incidences. And you can see that at the mortuaries. I mean, the mortuaries were having less violent crime deaths uh, being arrived at the mortuary than than the previous, you know, outside the lockdown period. But like you say, there will, of course, be the percentage of people who might be alcoholics who, who, if they don't get alcohol, can go through withdrawal symptoms and it adds sort of additional stresses that can make them agitated and angry. I would probably say, and I know I'm not going to be popular for saying this, that probably overall there were probably greater benefits of not having alcohol floating around in this time than there would be the negative side of it uh, in the home environment, of course. Um, and of course, now that, you know, as, as everybody's stocks ran out during, uh, and, and as you say, it's suddenly they were allowed to buy again, I think on the 1st of June or whenever it was. And of course, you can have people going overboard um, and, and that can lead to violent uh, incidences. Well, I tend to agree with you because alcohol, we know, takes away inhibitions. And especially in this time when we are meant to be keeping to ourselves, not being in groups, etc., alcohol does the opposite. You're not going to wear your mask. You are going to do silly things. Absolutely. And those are the people that obviously don't drink from the, the, the perspective of discipline, those undisciplined drinkers. We're going to Absolutely. take a break. When we come back, I'm going to throw the exact same question at you. But as a professional who was a profiler, as in the cigarette ban, what would a profiler have said to government and a threat assessor said to government if they heard that government was wanting to impose a cigarette ban knowing the threat that already existed with regards to organized crime? We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I've, I've had the opportunity to chat to a crime expert, Yusuf Abramji, about the cigarette ban. And I'm very, very fortunate now to have one of South Africa's foremost threat assessment um, specialists, uh, Gerard Labuskakni, on the show. 
And I, before we went to break, I asked him the question, as a ex-professional in the police force, um, if he had been asked to assess the potential outcome of a cigarette ban, would it have been? So, Gerard, your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, there's, obviously, there's different ways you can look at this. You can look at it, as you mentioned, from the organized crime perspective. You know, if people want a product, organized crime will find a way to try and get it to them. It's like prohibition in, in sort of the in the when it was the 20s in the United States. It just spurred a whole organized crime syndicate. So whether this was little organized crime in the sense of your friend selling you some cigarettes or on a grander scale, of course, that's going to happen as soon as you ban something. So that's the one side of it. I think from a threat assessment point of view, I, you know, I could understand the, the logic from a threat assessment point of view of saying we're going to we're going to try and cut alcohol out the equation for the period of lockdown, from a, as you pointed out, uh, you know, inhibitions being lowered, people engaging in violent acts, not following protect you know um, sanitizing rules and regulations. I think I always felt sorry for the smokers, and I'm not myself a smoker. Um, I did feel sorry for the smokers because I felt you know you take people who. The majority of smokers, I would say, are addicted to some degree to their cigarettes. And you take that away, you're going to have a lot of agitated people. And I don't know how great that would be if you're all together locked in a house and you have one or two smokers who are agitated, um, on edge, going through sort of a, a sort of withdrawal symptoms. How that might have increased the potential for um, some kind of violent outbursts or angry outbursts amongst the smokers. So I did have a great sympathy for the smokers during the initial lockdown period, not as much for the drinkers. But um, so yeah, so I think on two levels, I said. Organized crime, on the one hand, are going to thrive in an environment where something is inhibited. Uh, but from a, a threat perspective, in terms of interpersonal, uh, I did feel that that might have just really agitated people more uh, than, than was necessary and you, because you've taken away a crutch that they're used to having. So what I'm taking away from this is that the ban was not actually thought out properly. <laughs> but that, that, of course, is an opinion. Let's talk again about the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Are you hoping to attract people from both public and private sector? Uh, what kind of people would, would benefit from being a part of the association? And most importantly, what will they be able to take away collectively from the association? Yeah, firstly, we're definitely, I mean, it's the African Association, not the South African. So we're trying to reach out into Africa. And at our most recent open webinar, because we decided, um, because we're not going to be having the conference this year, which is a wonderful learning opportunity for people, um, we decided to sort of compensate for that by having every two, twice a month, every, basically every two weeks, um, different open webinars that anybody can attend. It's, it, they just have to sign up and, and they can, they can attend the webinar. And so, for example, last week's one was on how to identify risk, risk factors in potential workplace violence. The previous one had been about the role of mental health as a potential risk factor in, in, in violence. And the next one will be in about two weeks' times on the management of threats in the environment. Um, and the idea is to obviously reach as many people as possible. We had people from Tunisia, Niger, uh, Kenya, and Nigeria listening in on our most recent uh, open webinar, which is great because, as I said, we want to reach out into the whole of Africa. Um, the types of people, you know, when one deals with this specifically in a workplace environment, you know, it really can, if it's one of your employees who are becoming problematic, it's going to affect, it's going to touch on your HR people, it's going to touch on your labor law people, it's going to touch on your physical security people, your, you know, EHW, your ICAS people. Um, and of course, if you have someone who's a threat assessor also involved. So it's really a multidisciplinary way of managing these threats, specifically when the threat is someone in your organization. But absolutely, we want to reach, for example, you know, SAPs, uh, prison service, uh, DCS, correctional services, um, you name it, because wherever there are people, there will be conflict. So it's not to say, you know, this is only relevant to this type of uh, organization or that type of organization. You can have a primary school and have a problematic parent who maybe 
threatens one of the teachers or stalks one of the teachers. I mean, we've all seen at high schools how parents can have a go at each other, you know, on the side of the rugby field. So really any organization can have problems internally or problems externally with the people they provide services to or sometimes even a random stranger who is mental health issues who decides your organization is satanic because of this logo and they start to send certain communications. So it really does touch on private companies, uh, even psychologists who are in private practice, of course, can get threats and stalking, uh, you know, stalking behavior towards them, to obviously people, for example, in the police who have to manage uh, domestic violence issues. So we would definitely have been trying to get people, and I know in my old unit that I used to work in, we had quite a bit of training in this particular area, um, but I don't really know if other people in SAPS have ever, have ever kind of bought into the concept of it's not just about a protection order, it's about understanding how do we make this person safe and how do we assess the level of concern that this lady should be worried about or not worried about. I mean, I've just seen it, for example, recently when we've helping a young lady try and take out a protection order. And I mean, it was horrific. I mean, it took us four months. Uh, she had no interim protection order. And, and I helped her draft her initial statement, which for me was very clear cut that this lady is in grave danger. And the magistrate felt, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to give you an interim order. Come back in, in two months time. And I kind of sat there realizing, but, you know, do we train our magistrates to assess threats? Do we train our policemen and policewomen to assess threats that then where they get a client or a customer or someone coming to the charge office to report a case? Does this person actually have the ability to see, wow, I'm hearing things in this person's story that really make me concerned? Or do they just purely look at it from, well, that's a, or what that person said there, that's a crime. We can investigate that. And, and police are good at investigating and arresting, but that's not necessarily got anything to do with actually making someone safe per se. And I know that sounds a little bit contradictory. So definitely we want to reach police. We have had policemen coming. We've had people from the NPA because, of course, prosecutors get regular threats. Uh, we've had correctional services psychologists. So we want to expand into sort of the full range of people who can benefit from this. So, Gerard, let me give an example that our listeners can relate to. Domestic violence is a massive issue in South Africa. So in my personal opinion, and I'm going to get your considered professional opinion. In my personal opinion, I believe that HR generalists or anybody working within the HR environment need to have some kind of conflict identification and conflict negotiation skill. And I say this because we've seen time and time again where domestic abuse has overflowed into a business, where perhaps an order has been issued. The husband or the lover does not know where to find the wife or vice versa, except at work because she's now perhaps mm. in a place of safety or staying with a family member. They come to the work and it blows up. We've seen it happen mm. at police stations where police members have hurt one another or even killed one another. We've seen it in mm. businesses. So where does the right of privacy come in? Where does HR step in and say, we believe you're going through a divorce? Is there a risk? Are they violating mm. that person's right to privacy? And to turn it around, the person who is a potential target, when do they and do they have an obligation to tell their employer that they're going through a very ugly split and mm. that the person they were involved with was violent? Sure. You know, Chad, firstly, you've touched on one of the most things that I get very, very worked up about and how often companies, whenever there's a problem that, for example, like you said, the ex-boyfriend or ex-husband starts to phone the, the ex-partner at your place of work uh, or starts to pitch up downstairs and cause a scene at reception. And a lot of companies say to the lady, they almost secondarily victimize her to say, hey, sort your nonsense out and get him not to come back here. 
But precisely what you said, these people know that, A, I don't know where she's staying now, but I do know where she's going to go to work to every day. Or they just know that if I harass her at a workplace, it's going to cause massive problems for her or him. Um, so they abuse that. And you really have to have a scenario where companies understand that domestic violence is a workplace violence issue. You cannot say it's none of our business. Because if that guy was to come to your place of work and assault your receptionist because she doesn't want to allow her, this guy inside the premises or assaults the ex-girlfriend who is one of your employees on your premises, you will be sued heavily as a company if you knew about it and did nothing about it. So we have to change the mindset firstly in companies that workplace violence, uh, domestic violence is a workplace violence issue. And, and how do we sort that out? I think we have to start to have um, – firstly, the company must accept that it's a workplace violence issue, that they need to do something about it. And they, then they need to have programs where they say to the employees, you know, we, re- we recognize that people can go through these – these events. Uh, we want to support you. We would like to know if there's, for example, a protection order taken out against you know, your ex-partner that you've taken out, that if he arrives downstairs, we know that we don't let him in and there's a, there's a good reason why. And so that's really a culture change by the organization firstly. And then there's the education program from the company showing that we, you know, we want to support you in this. Um, and we've seen that, for example, Old Mutual is very good with that. And they had quite a few series of lectures last year where we presented to, you know, 200 people at a time saying this is protection. This is what domestic violence is. This is why we're concerned about it as a company. This is the things you can do, and we want to help you in this scenario to keep you and obviously the other employees safe. So it's, it's a mind shift, educating your staff out there to realize that we want to hear about this. Uh, and if you do that and understand that the, that the process of them wanting to hear about it is so that they can help you be safer in your place of employment. And in that process, they also make the other employees safer in that, in that process. Well, my two cents worth is that uh, it's not just a security department issue. It's an no, issue no. that can impact on the entire um, company, and HR should have the necessary training, A, in being identifying a possible conflict, and B, being able to resolve that conflict and, and, and liaise with your security departments, etc., to try and neutralize any potential threat. So that being said, how does somebody become a member of the Association of Threat Assessment uh, Professionals? And, and what is the, the, the process for them to become accredited by the association? Yeah, so, so March, just literally before the lockdown started, we kind of launched the, the membership, we launched our website, etc. Um, and of course, then COVID hit and kind of scuppered a lot of our plans that we had in place. So yes, yeah, so as of March, the, there is membership applications. We are accepting membership applications. One goes to the website, www.afatap.africa, afatap. Africa, and one basically fills in the, the um, online uh, information, and that comes through to us, and we can send you an invoice. Um, at this point, the, the, we are looking towards creating an accreditation. Uh, if you look at all the other associations in the world, the other four or five um, threat associations, the American one, the Canadian one, and the European one, they do have a form of accreditation. We just have to decide which is going to be the best procedure for us, because some of them are very lengthy, some of them are very expensive, and we obviously want to do something that's practical and achievable for, for people people in our environment. So that one of the goals of the organization is to create an accreditation process. So at the moment, there is membership um, that gives you access to the a membership section of the website, which was, has various certain resources that are out there for people to, to make use of, um, and obviously advance notice of certain things, talks, etc. that we're going to have. Uh, the conference, when we have it next year, there'll be discounted rates for those people. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. So if they go to the website, all that information uh, will be up there. In closing, and very important for my listeners, if 
somebody listening to the show right now is a victim of domestic violence or bullying or they know somebody and they just hope the problem is going to go away, what advice would you give them? Yeah, these things don't go away. Um, we, we want to believe they will because it's, it's difficult for us to accept that we're going to have to take, you know, large steps to protect ourselves or that things aren't going to change. So, but the reality is you cannot accept and hope that this is just going to go away. Um, you know, if it's happened more than one time, that just reaffirms the fact that these are things that are not going to go away. And one does need to take steps. Um, consult with someone who's objective to kind of just help you, you know, get some perspective on where you are. And as I said, denial is an amazing thing. I mean, we all have a wonderful capability of denying our circumstances. And that goes for highly intelligent people even, even psychologists who get into these scenarios and get stuck in domestic violence relationships, you know. So, yes, so bullying, domestic violence, if it's happened once, if it's part of that person's repertoire of problem solving, it's very unlikely that it's just going to go away. And what people tend to do is they cling for those wonderful moments. I call them those islands in the ocean. And that island is, well, oh, but he's such a nice guy when he's in this phase. But unfortunately, that phase is becoming less and less. And what you do is you try and see where the next island is instead of looking at the ocean right in front of you, which is potentially lethal uh, for your for your circumstances. We'll be uploading the website for the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals on the Confidential Brief Radio Show Facebook page. I'd just like to thank you today, um, Gerard. I look forward to seeing you once lockdown has ended. But more importantly, I'm going to be participating in one of your webinars um, in the coming weeks. I think it's, it's critically important. And for those out there, uh, visit the page. We're going to be uploading the details. And if you work in an HR environment or if you know somebody that's been harmed and you need information or you want to become a member, contact um, the association. Gerard, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for the great stuff you guys are doing.